morning, everybody. I want to welcome you. We're in week six of our series out of the New Testament book of James called How Faith Works, a series that we're going to be spending 12 weeks in uh, this fall, and so we are exactly halfway through. And, and if you're hopping in for the first time, I, I try to remind us of this at the front end of all of these teachings, that the undercurrent um, flowing underneath everything in James is this idea, I think it's such a helpful idea, uh, that there is a world of difference between uh, a mere profession of faith and genuine possession of faith. And so everything that James writes, <clears throat> every passage, every verse, is written with the intent to show us what our lives will look like if the faith that we claim is real. Uh, so this morning, we're going to be finishing up chapter 3 in verses 13 through 18. Let me go ahead and read it to you on the front end. It says, Who is wise and has understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This is God's word. So this passage is all about wisdom. And what James is doing here is he's comparing and contrasting two different kinds of wisdom. Uh, One is from above. It comes from God. uh, And when when it touches and transforms your life, it leads to peace. The other kind of wisdom James talks about here is really not a kind of wisdom at all. It's counterfeit, it's earthly, it's from below, it's not from God, and it's the kind of wisdom um, that if your life is, is run by it, then it's, a, it's a, a kind of wisdom that will basically lead to breakdown of every kind. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb on the front of our time together and say that one thing we all have in common, regardless of what differences divide us, is that we all want more of that first kind of wisdom in our lives. I don't know anybody that that says they have too much peace and not enough breakdowns in their life, so I think we all want the first kind. But if I can point something out, this is kind of, this has been unsettling to me all week. The question that I had when I was reading these verses initially is why would James compare and contrast these two different kinds of wisdom unless the difference between the two of them is not that apparent on the surface? So you don't feel the need to talk about the difference between two things when it's, when it's blatantly obvious what those differences are. And so what I mean to say is that according to this passage, and I just, just consider this, it is entirely possible that right now you think that the wisdom you're governing your life by is a wisdom that will lead to peace and flourishing when in fact the wisdom that you're building your life on is a wisdom that will eventually ruin your life. And the point of this passage and, and the point of today's teaching is to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the differences between these two kinds of wisdom James lays out for us here and then how to get the good kind of wisdom that leads to the things that we all want more of in our lives. But before we do that, I thought the wisest thing to do, since this passage is all about wisdom, is just take a minute or two on the front end of our time together and make sure that we really understand what James is talking about, what the Bible's talking about when it talks about this thing called wisdom. So what, what exactly, when James talks about wisdom, what exactly are we talking about? There's no better book in the Bible for defining wisdom than the book of Proverbs. And if you were with us back early, early 2020, we, we did, um, I, think, 
think we spent almost 20 weeks, actually, in the book of Proverbs looking at wisdom. So let me just go ahead and pivot out of James for just a minute here. And I want to read to you from Proverbs chapter 8, verses 12 through 16, because to my knowledge, there's no better place in the entire Bible for succinctly describing what wisdom is than those verses. Proverbs 8, 12 to 16. It says, I, wisdom, so this is wisdom speaking, I, wisdom, share a home with shrewdness and have knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. I possess good advice and competence. I have understanding and strength. It's by me that kings reign and rulers enact just law. By me, princes lead, as do nobles and all righteous judges. According to those verses, there are three elements that need to come together in order for you and I to have what the Bible defines as wisdom. I'll just walk through them real quick. First off, verse 12 says, I, wisdom, share a home with shrewdness. That word shrewdness is a Hebrew word that means it's the ability to notice little distinctions. So people who have shrewdness have the ability to look at the same thing that everybody else is looking at, but they can see more than anyone else sees. And so the first element of wisdom, according to the Bible, is first and foremost, it's about knowing how things really are. Uh, Building off of that, in verse 14, wisdom says, I have understanding. That's a Hebrew word that means, and this is the second element of wisdom, it's not just knowing how things really are, it's it's knowing how things really work. So so to give you an idea of what that means, a, a person with wisdom, according to the Bible, could look at you know, let, let, let's say there are, there's two marriages. You know, one is a very healthy marriage. The other is a very unhealthy marriage. A person uh, with wisdom, according to the Bible, would be able to look at both of those relationships and not only figure out which one is healthy and which one isn't, but they would be able to see beneath the surface of those relationships and see what has led to the health and the lack of health in those two relationships. Because people with wisdom, more than just being able to see how things really are, they have an understanding of how things work together. But even that is not all that the Bible's talking about when it talks about wisdom. Let me look at verses 15 and 16, where it says, It's by me, wisdom, that kings reign and rulers enact just law. By me, princes lead, as do nobles and all righteous judges. What, what those verses mean, this is saying that what all the best leaders in history have had in common, what every, what every leader that has ever furthered justice, led with righteousness, caused people under their leadership to flourish, what they've all had in common is that they have made decisions on the basis of wisdom. So this is the third and really the final element of wisdom. Um, More than just the ability to know how things are or how things work, wisdom, thirdly and finally, is about knowing what to do with that knowledge. So you put these three elements together and and what the Bible is, is telling us wisdom is, Wisdom is the ability to to move through life, to look into every situation you're going to find yourself in, every relationship you're a part of, into other people that you deal with, and even the ability to look into your own heart with a depth of insight and understanding that the vast majority of people simply don't have. But more than just having that knowledge, wisdom is about knowing what to do with it. You know, I, I remember saying this back when we went through Proverbs, that when you stand back and look at how the Bible talks about wisdom, wisdom is almost a superpower. Because our lives are filled with probably 85% of situations that the moral rules don't apply. There's no Bible verse to point to. 
Meaning, you're, you, I'm sure that, that if we got you know, personal here, all of us are in several of these situations right now. You're going to be faced all throughout your life with situations that don't have an obvious morally right and morally wrong answer. They just have a wise answer and a whole bunch of really unwise answers. And so wisdom is what you and I need to not completely make a mess of our lives. Now, having understood that, let me pivot back to James here because what he's doing here is he's comparing a kind of wisdom that's heavenly, it comes from above and it leads to peace, uh, with, with a, a counterfeit wisdom uh, that, is, that is earthly, and it leads to, like I said, breakdown of every kind. So I want to take some time here talking about these, these two different wisdoms. We'll start with the bad one. We're going to get the bad news out of the way first, and then we'll talk about the good one. And just a quick note here, I almost exclusively preach from the Holman Christ- Christian Standard Version of the Bible, uh, but I was reading this, this passage in a bunch of different versions, and I feel like the NIV is, is more clear on this one. So every verse I read, from you, read to you from here on out is from the NIV. So, so first off, let's look at this bad, this, this earthly wisdom that does not come from God. It's found in James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, which says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So what you have in these verses, James is telling us both what earthly wisdom starts with and what earthly wisdom ends with. Uh, all right, he says that it starts with, with two things rolling around in your heart, bitter envy and selfish ambition. So, so let me just go through these words one at a time. First off, when you look at this first word James uses here, my version translates it envy, but if you read it in another version, it could be translated jealousy or zeal. What you'll find is that this word, when it's used in Scripture, is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. In other words, this same word, a lot of times when it shows up in the Bible, it, it actually refers to something positive. Sometimes it's even used to describe the very nature of God himself. And so when James is talking about here is not something that's, that's necessarily bad in and of itself. He's talking about a good thing that's gone bad in your life. And that's what makes this, this envy, this jealousy, this zeal so hard to identify and deal with. One commentary I was reading this week put it this way. It said the problem is that this zeal or jealousy, envy, whatever you want to call it, can easily become blind fanaticism, bitter strife, or a disguised form of rivalry and thus jealousy. And then it said this. This was sobering to me. It says the person who has this envy, this jealousy, this zeal, it says they, this person sees himself as jealous for the truth, but God and others see the bitterness, rigidity, and personal pride which are far from the truth. So I, I'll just put it this way. If you have ever met, I'm sure you have, I'm sure somebody's going to come to mind here, but if you've ever met somebody that seems to have an insane wealth of biblical knowledge, but they're just mean, they're just a jerk. You ever met somebody like that? I mean, they can spout off scripture like they're made of words, but they're just unkind. That's exactly who James is talking about here. And what this person doesn't understand, a person with bitter envy in their heart doesn't understand, is that it, it, you know, it's, it's one thing to be passionate about the truth, which we all should be. It's another thing entirely to go out of your way to communicate the truth in such a way that's designed to humiliate people who disagree with you. That's what these people do. But the point is, these people never realize that in themselves. 
They never wake up one day and say, man, I got bitter envy falling out of my pockets. I better repent. They need somebody else outside of them to kind of beat them over the head the way they beat everybody else over the head because they move through life with this mindset that, no, I'm not, I'm not callous. I'm not unkind. I'm not cruel. I'm just passionate for the truth. I'm just, uncomp- I'm just unyielding in a culture that's spiraling toward relativism when the truth is they're not passionate about the truth. They're passionate about their image, and they use the truth like a weapon with which to wound other people. That's bitter envy. The second thing James says this, uh, this earthly wisdom starts with, it's, it's bitter envy on the one hand, but it's also selfish ambition. This is a word that really was interesting to me because this is a word that has a political connotation to it. It literally refers to a politician who's running for office, putting themselves forward, desperate for public approval, and will do anything to get the vote. So we've all seen, you know, commercials or maybe you've heard speeches live of politicians that just, in the, in the least kind way possible, throw their opponents under the bus and make them and everybody who agrees with them the real problem with society. And then in the next breath, they hold themselves as, you know, the hope for a brighter future. And they tell, talk to you about how great they are and all the great things that they've done. And, you know, we find that nauseating. The way that God has designed the world is there's nothing more ignorable than a person who demands attention. There's, there's no person harder to respect than somebody that stands on the stage and say, please respect me. <clears throat> um, what James is saying is that we're all like that. <laughs> what James is saying is that when you see a politician standing on front of a stage and you don't at see at least a part of yourself, then you don't know yourself. According to this verse, you and I and all, every human being that's ever walked the face of this earth, we're like little politicians running through life begging people to vote for us. And the Bible even tells us why. Because according to Scripture, even if, even if you wouldn't say, even if you don't believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, even if you wouldn't consider yourself a religious person, even if you're not even sure where you're at with the existence of God in general, the Bible teaches that, that every single human heart has this deep sense that there's something wrong with us. There's some deficiency in us that we either need to cover up or compensate for in some way. And so we all go through life trying to put this image forth to the world in the hope that if we can just get enough external approval, then maybe we'll finally feel okay. And that can manifest itself in any number of different ways in our lives. You know, if I, let me just go through four of them real quick. One way that that selfish ambition can manifest itself is workaholism. You know, workaholism is, is basically, it's, it's, um, it's birthed from this idea that maybe if I'm successful enough, then I'll finally be enough. You know, it can manifest itself as materialism, where, you know, you spend absolutely everything that you have on yourself in the hope that maybe you can show people how valuable you are through the house that you can afford, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the lifestyle that you can afford. It can manifest itself as this desperate hunger for romantic love where we kind of lose our minds if we don't have somebody romantically interested in us at all times because it's like our whole lives are run on this idea that you're nobody until you're loved by somebody, or this might surprise you to hear from a pastor, but one of the main ways that this selfish ambition James is talking about can manifest itself in your and my life is morality. The Bible hits us with case study after case study of this, specifically in the gospel accounts. Jesus was always drilling at this. He told parables to highlight this that one of the main ways that that the human heart loves to try to compensate with this feeling that we're not good enough, one of the main ways the human heart compensates for that is through morality, through strict adherence to God's law, through a whole bunch of good deeds, in the hope that if we just do enough of them, 
then maybe we'll look good enough in the eyes of other people or we'll finally feel good about ourselves and this nagging sense that we don't measure up could maybe go away, but the problem is it never does, it never works. And so you put these two words together, this bitter envy, this selfish ambition, and what James is describing here is the, pi- the picture of someone who is, who is moving through life, please hang on to this word, hungry. The picture that James is describing here is of a person who is driven by hunger in everything they do. They're desperately hungry for recognition, for approval, for validation, for attention, for respect, for love, for you name it, and they will go to any lengths to get it. That's what this earthly wisdom starts with. What what does this wisdom eventually end with? What does it lead to? The answer is in verse 16. And this this is a really interesting verse because it's diagnostic. Verse 16 says, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find, or some versions will say, you will find two things, disorder and every evil practice. So, So follow this. The first thing that earthly wisdom leads to, according to James, is this word translated disorder. Now, I was looking up that word this week. That's a word... It's got, a, it's got a, like a wealth of meaning. It can mean confusion. It can mean instability. Or if you look at, at how it's used, if you survey the whole New Testament and see how it shows up, sometimes this word describes a literal riot in a city. You know, the overthrowing of a social order, which is what a riot is. Or it can actually refer to the commotion and the tumult of war itself. James is saying, that's what will show up in your life This is where this gets real diagnostic. This is where this gets real uncomfortable. So let's do it. James is saying that disorder will show up in your life. That's what your life will feel like if the real foundation of your life is earthly wisdom. Meaning, I'll just put it this way, James is saying one of the main ways that you and I I can know that the actual functional foundation of our lives is earthly wisdom despite what we say we believe One of the main ways you can know this is you is if you can look into your own life right now and and you sense a deep restlessness. That no matter what you achieve, you still can't find the peace you've been looking for. I'm willing to bet that there's a number of people listening to this right now that if you got real honest with yourself, if you zoomed out from where you are today to 5, 10, 15, 20 years back, I bet a lot of us are standing in a place that we used to dream about standing in, meaning we finally have, maybe we got into the school, maybe we got the degree, maybe we got the job, maybe we got into the relationship, maybe we got into the place of life where we told ourselves once upon a time, if I just got there, then I'd finally be whole, then I'd finally be happy, then my life could finally begin, and yet here we are, and we have no more peace than we did when we were working for the things that we have now laid our hands on. And it feels like there's this war going on inside of us. That's precisely what James is describing here. And when he says that earthly wisdom will lead to that disorder, that restlessness, that turmoil, and every evil practice, I'll just tell you, I don't think James is saying that people who build their lives on earthly wisdom will literally do every evil thing a human being can do. I think his point's way simpler than that. All James is saying here is that if you find yourself in that place, that disorder, that restlessness, that turmoil, and you don't eventually realize that the root of that restlessness and that turmoil is not outside of you. It has nothing to do with what's going on outside of you and everything to do with what's going on inside of you, then what will happen 
is you'll respond to that restlessness and that turmoil in all kinds of different ways, and none of them will be good. And you will not find the peace that has as yet eluded you. Right? That's the, that's the earthly wisdom and, and what it leads to. So from there, let me pivot. We're going to talk about the kind of wisdom that we all want. It's found in verse 13. I'll just read this first verse to you. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? Who actually has this wisdom that's from God is the question. He says, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Let me just read that one more time. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So the first thing that he says here, we just read this at, you know, on the surface. It says, if you really are wise, show it by living a good life. Now, at the risk of, of sounding condescending here, let me just point this out. You probably think, if this is the first time you're reading this verse and you haven't had a week to study it, you probably think you know what that means. Like I thought I knew what it meant when I first read it until I started looking at the words that James uses here. It looks like, on the surface, this just looks like moralism. It looks like what James is saying is, hey, if you claim to be wise, prove it by living a good life. Be a good person. Do good deeds. Regulate your life according to what God says, and that will prove that you really are as wise as you claim to be. I want to be real clear here. All of that's good advice. I hope we all are good people that live good lives and do good things and regulate our lives according to God's word. However, it's important to note that's not what James is saying here. This is where one of those places where the English language kind of fails us, all right? If, if I can, for all my language nerds out there, let me try to walk you through this. In, in the Greek language, which is the, it was, it was the language that the New Testament was originally written in, it might interest you to find out there are two Greek words that both get translated as good in the English language. One of them is the Greek word agathos. That means morally good as opposed to morally evil. Well, interestingly enough, that's not the word James uses here. The Greek word James uses here is the Greek word kalos, and what it literally means is beautiful as opposed to ugly. One commentary I read this week said this. It said, what James speaks of is the loveliness of goodness the attractiveness of the good life, its wholesomeness and helpfulness as seen in the Lord's people, a way of life whose goodness is plain to all who see. What James is saying here, and I, I don't know if this is going to hit you and convict you or maybe inspire you the way that it has for me this week, but what James is saying here is the first and primary way that genuine wisdom will reveal itself in your life is that your life will be beautiful to all who see it. The more I thought about that, the more it dawned on me how high James raises the bar with what he says here. Meaning, do you know how much easier it would have been on us if James has said, hey, if you really are wise, prove it with your sound doctrine. With all the Bible verses that you've memorized and all, the, all of your knowledge about God. Or, or if James had said, hey, if you really are wise, prove it by your moral goodness. That's not what he says here. That's not what he's talking about here. And again, I want to be really clear, Christians should have those things. But if we can get really honest, I'll just tell you something that you already know. You can have all of the sound doctrine in the world and still be a really ugly person. One chapter ago, James said that demons have better doctrine than you and I will ever have in this life. They're not known for their beauty. 
You can, you can live an incredibly morally upright life, regulating every breath you take according to what God says in his word, and still be a really ugly person. That's why Jesus sparred so sharply with the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders in his day. Those are people that had huge sections of Scripture memorized, regulated every moment of their lives according to what God had said, and yet Jesus looked at them and said, you all are a bunch of whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside but dead, full of death. James knew that as the half-brother of Jesus, and so what he's saying here is that a wise life is not just a doctrinally sound life, and it's not even just a morally good life. A wise life is a beautiful life. And this week I came across a story that highlights exactly what this beautiful life is meant to look like. <clears throat> this is a story. It, uh, it, it came from a book called, I believe the book was called A Creative Minority, but the story itself finds its origin in a novel called The Cellist of Sarajevo, which if you're not familiar like I wasn't until I read this, Sarajevo is the, it's the capital of Bosnia. It's a true story. On May 28, 1992, the principal cellist in the Sarajevo opera dressed in his formal black tails and sat down on a fire-scorched chair in a bomb crater to play Albanoni's Adagio in G minor. The site was outside a bakery in Smilovitz's neighborhood. That's the name of the cellist here, the cellist of Sarajevo. Uh, uh, There's this guy named Smilovitz. It says the site was outside a bakery in Smilovitz's neighborhood where 22 people waiting in line for bread had been killed the previous day. During the siege of Sarajevo from 1992 to 1995, more than 10,000 people were killed. The citizens lived in constant fear of shelling and snipers while struggling each day to find food and water. Smilovitz lived near one of the few working bakeries where a long line of people had gathered when a shell exploded. He rushed the scene and was overcome with grief at the carnage. For the next 22 days, one for each victim of the bombing, he decided to challenge the ugliness of war with his only weapon, beauty. Known as the cellist of Sarajevo, Smilovitz not only performed outside the bakery, but continued to unleash the beauty of his music in graveyards, at funerals, in the rubble of buildings, and in the sniper-infested streets. I never stopped playing music through the siege, he said. My weapon was my cello. And it's this part at the end that's my favorite part of this. It says, although completely vulnerable, Smilovitz was never shot. It was as if the beauty of his presence repelled the violence of war. His music created an oasis amid the horror. It offered hope to the people of Sarajevo and a vision of beauty to the soldiers who were destroying the city. I, I could look for years, and I, I don't know that I'd find a better illustration to describe what this beautiful life that only the wisdom of God can create than that. What James is saying is the high calling of men and women of God is, is not simply good doctrines, not simply intellectual information about God, not simply even moral goodness. It's that people who have spent time with and been transformed by Jesus would beat back the brokenness and the darkness and the ugliness of this world with beauty that people could look to and not be able to explain except for a life that's been transformed by his half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the high calling of every single man and woman of God. If you're like me, the next question is, well, where does that beauty come from? What, what makes this life so beautiful? And the answer is found in, in, in the second half of verse 13. I already read it to you. 
James says, let them live it by their good life, their beautiful life, and then he explains what makes that life so beautiful. It's marked by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So what James is saying, what makes this life so beautiful is that instead of doing things out of hunger, this is a life in which everything you do, you do out of humility. It's about a life, instead of going through life, doing everything you can to try to get your needs met, it's about living a life out of the reality that you've already had your needs met in Jesus. And this is what makes... This is what makes this wisdom so hard to identify, and this is why it's so easy uh, to, 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 to mistake, to live in self-deception, to not really know whether the wisdom that you have and that you're building your life on is from above or from below, because when James says that this beautiful life is marked by deeds done in humility, this means that a person living their life with a wisdom from above and a person living their life with wisdom from below might do a lot of the same things. They might do a lot of the same deeds. You know, let me just use this as, as a case study. It's entirely possible that between both of our services today, two people came to church this morning right here in this sanctuary and sat next to each other, one of them having legitimately had their life completely transformed by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, and the person next to them might simply have been just a, a hardworking, religious, moral person. If you followed both of those people for a seven-day period of time, you would find that they do a lot of the same stuff. On the surface, their lives look almost identical. They both read their Bible. They both pray. They both serve. They both give. They both do nice things for others. They both go to church on Sunday. And so what James is saying here is that the fundamental thing that distinguishes the two of them is not just the deeds they do. It's the motivation behind every single deed they do. What he was saying earlier, we talked about this, that earthly wisdom leads you to, to, to move through life doing everything you do out of this desperate hunger. You're hungry for recognition, for glory, for approval, for acceptance, for attention, for love, and everything you do is an attempt to get those needs met. But what he's saying here is that people who possess the wisdom of God have had that hunger replaced with a deep divine humility. There's no need for recognition in these people's lives. There's no need for glory. There's no need for approval. That, so they don't get bitter or resentful when they're denied that, and they don't lose their minds when they lose that because that, they were never motivated by those things to begin with. That's what makes their lives so beautiful. Everything they do, they legitimately do for someone other than themselves, and there's nothing more beautiful than that. I, I was thinking about it this week. One of the things, if you, look at all, if you look at all the classic stories that mankind has produced, as long as we've been here, one thing that almost every story that really moves us, really inspires us, one of the only things that every single one of those stories tends to have in common is this theme of self-sacrifice. It's just the way that God's designed the world. It's the way that he designed the human heart. There's nothing that we find so moving. There's nothing that we find so admirable as a hero or a heroine legitimately laying down their life for the sake of those around them. And what James is saying is that people who have been touched by the wisdom of God live a beautiful life because that's what their life is like. Everything they do is birthed from this humility. That is beauty. And so the question is, where does the wisdom that has the power to create a life like that, where does it come from? And the answer is found for us in verse 17. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits without favoritism and hypocrisy. This, the thing that struck me about verse 17, if you just, if you just study it for a moment here, is, is that James, in, he, in the way that he describes wisdom, I don't know if you caught this, he personifies it, meaning James speaks about wisdom like it's a person. He says that wisdom came from above, it's from above, 
It loves peace. It's full of mercy. And you stand back from that, you realize that an attribute can't be from a place. An attribute can't love mercy. An, an, an attribute can't love peace. Only a person could be described that way. And you can read that and, and you can kind of just dismiss that as a po- poetic device, but it begs the question, what if it's not? You know, it's almost like James went out of his way, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God in verse 17, to describe wisdom in a way that would cause us to think, but, but, but what would it be like? How amazing would it be if wisdom really was a person who wasn't from here, but came down here and showed us a kind of beauty unlike anything we'd ever seen before? And of course, the gospel tells us that that's exactly what's happened for us in Jesus. The gospel message is this message that the wisdom of God became a person and entered into human history in the person of Jesus, and he was unlike anything that anyone had ever seen before. He was, he was everything that James describes here. He was pure, he was peace-loving, he was gentle, he was compliant, he was full of mercy and good fruits, he was without favoritism and hypocrisy. In other words, Jesus lived this beautiful life that you and I know we have completely failed to live. But more than just modeling this life for us so that we could be impressed by him or even inspired by him, in the greatest act of humility imaginable, Jesus Christ took the ugliness of this world and the ugliness of your and my sin into himself and he nailed it to the cross with him so that more than just seeing his beauty, we could step into that beauty and we could be made beautiful ourselves. We've arrived at the end of our time together this morning, and there's, there's one final question I wanted to put before you that if, if I were you, <clears throat> it would be the only question worth asking. <clears throat> so what? Um, this was a really hard teaching for me to put together, kind of came down to the wire, because I got to this point in the teaching, and I was thinking, that's great. Earth wisdom bad, heaven wisdom good. What am I supposed to do with that? I've said something like this before every one of these teachings in this series. James as an author, no author wrote like this, but specifically James, as practical and pragmatic as he is, James did not write to provide us with information. He wrote to produce transformation so that the lives of his hearers, his readers, would be qualitatively different for having read what he had to say. So the question is, hey, all of that's intellectually stimulating and fascinating, but how can James chapter 3 verses 13 through 18 help me live a life more like this beautiful life that's been laid out for me here? And and so I'm I'm just going to end with this. If you are here today and you want to see more beauty in your life and less breakdown, then I'm going to end this teaching speaking to you specifically. There are two things that we have to let this passage do if it's going to produce any real and lasting change in our lives. We have to let this passage show us who we are, and we have to let it show us who Jesus is. First off, who we are. This part's painful. I'm, I'm positive. I'm positive that there is a, there's a number of people listening to this right now, and people who will tune into this later, who when I described that disorder that James was talking about earlier, that confusion, that instability, that breakdown, that lack of peace, that restlessness, that turmoil, I bet there's a lot of people listening to this right now that would say, that sounds familiar. 
I got a lot of that going on right now. In my personal life, in my professional life, in my, in my relationships, I see breakdown everywhere I look. If that's you, I do not say this without thinking deeply and carefully, but if that's you, let me just be as logical as I know how to be. If James is right, and I believe he is because I believe that all of these are the inspired word of God, if James is right, and bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart is what leads to disorder in your life, then that logically means that if you're listening to this right now and there's disorder in your life, it's because there is bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart. This passage, among other things, is designed to get us to the place where we are finally ready to admit, and no one can do this for you. No one can do what I'm about to say for you. This is something that has to be done to you by the Holy Spirit of God. But this passage was written to get you and I to this point where we're finally ready to admit that the biggest problems in our lives have nothing to do with what's going on outside of us and everything to do with what's going on in our own hearts. That is a hard word. And as I say that, that doesn't mean that there aren't people listening to this right now. That doesn't mean that you don't have legitimate problems outside of you that need to change. It doesn't mean that you don't have people in your life who also badly need to change and they have mistreated you and they have wronged you. All of that can be true at the same time. But at the end of the day, as much as we don't want to admit it, the greatest threat to peace in our lives has always been and, and will always be inside of our own hearts. We are starved for glory, for recognition, for acceptance, for approval, for love. And, and that's not wrong in and of itself, but where it becomes wrong is that we move through life and we look for those things in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. And that, according to James, more than anything else, is what leads to the turmoil and the brokenness and the breakdown and the restlessness and the lack of peace in our lives. We have to start there. Biblically speaking, the only way to begin to grow in wisdom is to admit what a fool I have been. We have to start there, but we can't stay there. Because if, if we stay there, then we just move out of here with a holy low sense of self-worth. And we're miserable and we're despondent and God has not called any of his children to that. And so if we want to see lasting life change, what I said was we, we need not only to let this passage show us who we are, we need to let it show us who Jesus is. And let me call the worship team up when I explain that because we're done now and I'm going to end with this. What we need to see, if we're ever going to change, is that Jesus is the ultimate display of the wisdom of God that we so desperately need. But more than just seeing that in an intellectual and academic way, what you need to see personally, I'll end making this as personal as I can for you, what you need to see personally, if there will ever be lasting transformation in your life, you need to see Jesus Christ doing everything that he did out of perfect humility for you. You need to see Jesus Christ that though all the things that we look for in life were already his, he had perfect glory, he had honor, he had beauty, he had love, he had everything that was rightly his. What you need to see if you're going to change is Jesus Christ laying all of that down, giving all of that up for you so that you could finally find the recognition and the glory and the beauty and the love that you have been looking for all your life if you got honest with yourself. The longer that I've done this, the more clear it's become to me. Growing as a Christian really just boils down to realizing one more time in a deeper way that everything that my heart is hardwired to need is already mine by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. It's as we see that and know that and realize that in deeper and more life-changing ways 
that we will gain the ability to walk away from the bitter envy and selfish ambition that, that's always threatening to steer the ships in our lives and we'll gain the ability to do for others what God through Christ has done for us. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how to live a beautiful life. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, I, I come away from this passage and all I, all I know to do is, is just ask you to help me, to help us. There's a standard that we've seen in this verse that not a self-aware person on the, on the planet could say they've lived up to. We need your help. We need what you've done for us to change us. God, I, I, I know that there's people listening to this now or they're going to tune in at a later date and the disorder in their life is real and it's painful and they're ready to walk away from it. God, I, I just believe there's people that you've brought here that you've allowed things to go wrong in their life, not to wound them, not to shame them, not to destroy them, but to bring them to the end of themselves that they might finally get to the feet of Jesus. Please let it happen. Please, please open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ, to his humility, to what he's done, not just for the world, but for us personally, that we might see that and be changed by that and live these beautiful lives that lead to peace. That's what you have for your children. Make us a community of people who live beautiful lives, that everywhere we go, there's peace. By grace through faith in the name of Jesus, we ask these things, and all of God's people said, amen. Thank you.